Welcome to the second episode of the Grow It podcast, the new gardening and allotment podcast with new episodes available every Wednesday morning with guides and information about what jobs you can be doing in your garden as we make our way through the gardening year together. I'm Barry and in today's episode we're going to be looking at the good bits and the bad bits about using vermiculite in your potting mix. We look at the five most important jobs for starting a new allotment and finally I'll be revisiting the botanical origin story of tomatoes and the links to witchcraft and poisonings. So let's crack on with it. Vermiculite is a type of mineral that's been used in gardening and agriculture for many years. It's a naturally occurring mineral and it's extracted from mines all around the world and then it's processed for use in horticulture. The history of vermiculite dates back to the early 1900s when it was discovered in the United States and began to be used for a variety of purposes including insulation, fireproofing and soil improvement. Vermiculite is characterised by its unique structure, which allows it to absorb and retain water and nutrients, making it an ideal soil additive for gardening. It's also lightweight, which makes it easy to handle and mix into soil. And today we'll take a closer look at the benefits and drawbacks of using vermiculite in gardening. Whether you're a seasoned gardener or you're just starting out, it is important to understand the pros and cons of using this versatile mineral in your garden. So let's dive in and learn more about vermiculite and its role in gardening. And we'll start off with the good points, and the first of those is water retention. Vermiculite has a unique ability to retain water and release it slowly as the plant needs it. This helps to keep the soil moist and prevents overwatering. It's also great for aeration. Vermiculite provides good aeration to the soil, allowing the roots to receive oxygen, and this helps to improve root growth and overall plant health. Another good reason to have vermiculite in your soil is because it improves it. Vermiculite can help to improve soil structure and fertility, making it easier for plants to just physically grow and thrive. And another great point of using it is that it's lightweight. Vermiculite is a lightweight material which makes it easy to handle and mix into soil and it doesn't get, make your soil heavy and compact. And on to the bad points, one of the big ones being cost. Vermiculite can be more expensive than other soil additives, which makes it a lot less accessible for most gardeners. And then there's the availability. Vermiculite may not be widely available in all areas, making it difficult for some gardeners to get hold of. And then there's the inconsistent quality. The quality of vermiculite can vary, which can lead to inconsistent results when you do get it into the garden. And then there's the potential contaminants. And this is a really big one, particularly with vermiculite, because it can sometimes contain contaminants such as asbestos, which can be really, really harmful to human health if you inhale it, and it can do some really nasty things to your lungs so regardless of um, what you're using with the vermiculite with it's a really good idea to use a really top quality uh, respirator mask or a dust mask while you're using it because you don't want to be breathing that in if it is in there so overall, vermiculite is one of those things that you've just got to make that decision for yourself, whether you weigh up the good points and the bad points and then make your decision based off that. Personally, I don't use it. I've never really felt any poor results in what I've been growing by not using it. I just use lighter soils like compost. I use uh, cocoa fibre, coir compost, and I've never really had any problems or seen any need to use it. So it's up to you, whatever you think, based on whether you've used it before or whether you've not seen the results you want, maybe you want to try it out. But of course, just do take those precautions when you are using it to make sure you're not breathing in any of that dust. 
It's that time of year when allotment leases are up for renewal and that means that all of the abandoned allotments are going to be getting reallocated to people on waiting lists up and down the country. The bad news is that nine times out of ten, the allotment will have been neglected and left to go to ruin over a long period of time. And it's amazing how quickly allotments will go wild if they're left to their own devices. Allotment gardening is a great way to grow your own food, get some exercise and connect with nature. And when taking over an allotment for the first time, there are several key jobs that you need to get done to help to ensure that your plot is ready for planting and growing by the time that spring comes around. These five jobs are some of the most important to focus on in order to get your allotment off to the best start possible. The first step when taking over an allotment is to clear any weeds, debris and any old plant material from the plot. This will help make sure that the soil is healthy and ready for planting. Clearing the plot of any old plant material will also reduce the risk of diseases and pests being carried over from one season into the next. If there's any large trees or shrubs, consider them cutting down as well to give you some more space and light. Make sure to properly dispose of any waste generated during the cleaning process. So all of those bits of plants and old leaves and everything, just stick them in a compost heap and get that started while you're at it. And as I mentioned in the last episode, if you're fortunate enough to have come across one with a greenhouse or a polytunnel already in, start cleaning that glass or polycarbonate or whatever material is in your greenhouse, your polytunnel covers and all that. Start get cleaning off all of that green stuff that's on it, all that muck, and it'll be ready as soon as it starts warming up and you want all, those, all that sunlight to get through the glass and start heating up your plants it's going to be ready and ready to go. You don't want to be doing that once your plants are already there and growing and you're having to walk all over and move things around and do all that messing about. Get it cleaned out now, ready to start at the beginning. The next big job, once you've cleared up all of that rubbish, it's time to start preparing the soil. The soil is the foundation of your allotment, so it's important to make sure that it is in good condition. Depending on the type of soil you have, you may need to add compost or well-rotted manure to help improve its structure and fertility. Adding organic matter to the soil will help to retain moisture, improve soil structure and increase the soil's nutrient levels. Consider testing the soil to determine the pH and nutrient levels of your soil and then based on the test results you can adjust the soil accordingly to make sure that it is well suited to growing the crops that you want to grow. So you've done the cleaning, you've got the soil ready. Before you start planting, it's important to have a plan for your allotment. Decide what types of crops you want to grow and where you want to plant them. This will help you make the most of your space and maximise the amount of food that you can produce. Consider using a raised bed system for growing crops as this can help to improve soil drainage and reduce the risk of soil-borne diseases. When planning your plot, also think about the orientation and the location of the sun. This is a really big one, as it'll help affect the growth and development of your crops. And since there's people that are listening all over the world, I can't really give you advice on which part of the sky the sun comes up in and goes down in, so... Or does it come up in the same place in everywhere in the world? I don't know. Anyway, the best thing to do is just to go over to your plot. And while you're there cleaning it out and getting that soil ready, doing those first two jobs, have a look where the sun is and where it's going. And obviously just keep in mind that you are there in the winter or whatever season it is. If maybe if you're in the other side of the world, is it still winter? I don't know any of this stuff. Anyway, <laughs> wherever you are in the world, just see where it is. And bear in mind that in the summer, it's going to be higher up in the sky and it's going to touch more of your allotment. So just base where you put things so if you're going to put a shed in there you're going to 
put it in a place where it isn't blocking the light later on in the year because you don't want to be putting your shed in and then realise it's completely shading where you want your tomatoes to be growing or something. So just plan for the future, where the sun's going to be, which bits of your allotment are going to get the most of that sunlight and then plan around that. And next up is fencing and netting. And hopefully when you turn up at your new allotment, there's going to be a really nice fence, uh, loads of nice netting and trellising already that's been left there from the uh, tenant before. But if it's anything like me, I turned up at my allotment the first time. It was an absolute tip. And it had no fences, none at the sides, at the front. It did have a fence at the back. It's got like the, the proper boundary at the back, a big spiky fence. But there was nothing at the sides and at the front. And it is, it's a really important job to get that up there because you don't want people coming snooping around through all your stuff like if you're taking bits and bobs over getting your allotment ready wheelbarrows and spades and stuff obviously you don't want those to go missing and you just you just want to keep people off once you start getting your beds and red ready and everything you don't want people walking over them and that sort of thing so getting that fence up and getting the your proper border to your allotment is one of the most important jobs and the other thing is he wanted to protect your crops from birds and other animals so you might need to put up some fencing or netting just around your beds as well this is particularly important if you're growing crops that are particularly vulnerable such as soft fruits and vegetables things that are sweet that birds like eating like berries or or, um, things that I don't know rats are going to come and take like my tomatoes so choose a fence that is tall enough to prevent animals from getting in and then make sure that the fence is sturdy enough to withstand strong winds and other weather conditions as well because that's even worse when you come over and everything's blown over and you've got to do it all again if you are using netting make sure that it is really tight and securely attached to the fence posts and also make sure that it isn't the sort that's going to trap animals like birds or hedgehogs or anything because you don't want them getting stuck in there and uh, doing themselves a mischief the next job is the watering system and you need to think about how you're going to water your plants because that's a really important part of it if there's no water source on your allotment you're going to need to bring the water with you every time you come to visit so do consider setting up a water butt or installing a rainwater collection system to help conserve all the water that you can it's going to make your arms a lot happier in the long run this will save you all that time and effort and it'll also help to reduce the amount of water that you use as well so it's a bit better for the environment if you're going to be using a watering can, make sure that it does have a fine rose to help distribute the water evenly over your plants. This is particularly important with your younger seedlings. Um, I don't really use a watering can for the first maybe month or something on plants. I always use... Um, like an empty drinks bottle with a, a screw cap and I'll heat up a pin or something and poke loads of holes in the top uh, and then you can just fill that up and screw the lid back on and it makes a, a bit of a smaller watering can with less water pressure behind it so it sort of just runs out and doesn't just flatten all of your ceilings so that's a really good idea if you want to do that or you can also if you just go to like B&Q or uh, the garden centre or Wilkinson's or something and pick up one of those um, like pressurised spray bottles the ones that you pump and then it's got like uh, the trigger on it and it can, you can just adjust the nozzle so it's like a smaller finer mist that's also a really good job so that you're not like when you pour water on with a watering can it fills up too quickly and all your soil floats up and floats around everywhere and it, it can just affect your root structures and um, sort of do harm to your plants in the long run so it is better to just mist them or use a fine spray for that first month or so until they are a bit stronger and a bit more established under the soil and the other good thing is as well it conserves water so just try to con just try to water your plants 
in the early morning or the late evening when the temperatures are cooler and there's less evaporation. Otherwise, you're going to be pouring your water over your plants onto the top of the soil and the sun's just going to evaporate it off straight away and they're not actually going to get any of it. So do stick to early mornings or late evenings. And there they are, just by focusing on these five jobs, you'll be well on your way to creating a successful and productive allotment. With a little bit of hard work and planning, you'll soon be enjoying fresh homegrown produce that is both delicious and nutritious. And now for the final part of the podcast, I'm going to be going into the botanical origins of the tomato plant, which is something that really interests me. And hopefully it'll be something that'll interest you as well, because it's really nice, like all those plants that we grow, it's really nice to get into the background of those and get a real understanding of where those plants came from. So to start with the most basic part, tomatoes are the fruit of the tomato plant, Solanum lycopersicum, and they're unusual as fruits in that they're most often associated with savoury foods rather than sweet ones, which is why they can often be incorrectly described as a vegetable but I think by this point most people know or at least they've accepted that tomatoes are a fruit which also applies to a load of other fruits that are mistaken as vegetables like cucumbers, pumpkins, squashes and aubergines. The scientific name Solanum lycopersicum is made up of the name of the genus which is Solanum and the second part lycopersicum is a name of a Greek origin which can be split into two words. We've got lyco which means wolf and persicum which is peach. So you put those together and we've got wolf peaches which has links to the tomato's supernatural past which I'll get on to later. The more recognisable common name tomato originates in the Spanish language and in modern English the pronunciation is split between how we pronounce it in the UK which is tomato and the American pronunciation tomato um, and someone's been giving me lip about that on YouTube this week for saying why am I saying tomato it's like because I'm English and that's how we say it but uh, yeah that's one of those arguments that's going to be going on forever so uh, we'll just leave that there. So we'll go back to those classifications. The Solanum genus is quite a diverse one, consisting of around 2,000 species of flowering plants, including the potato plant, tobacco, uh, aubergines, which are also known as eggplants, and a lot of other nightshades and horse nettles. It's really easy to see the similarities between closely related Solanum plants when you look at the fruit. In particular, the fruit of the potato plant, which you definitely shouldn't eat, they look like little green tomatoes and aubergines are eggplants which look like elongated purple tomatoes or even just normal peppers which can be hot or sweet and they're sort of like hollow tomatoes with thicker skin. Solanaceae is a family of over 2,700 plants which forms 98 genera commonly referred to as nightshades and a common feature of plants in this family is the production of a diverse range of alkaloids which are just secondary chemical compounds that are usually produced as a defense system against a herbivore or an insect which have been exploited for all kinds of uses throughout history with compounds that include nicotine produced in large quantities in the tobacco plant as a neurotoxin defense against herbivorous insects and that's now a billion dollar global market tomatoes potato and aubergine also contain nicotine but you don't need to worry about getting addicted to tomatoes like with Homer Simpson's tobacco as we are talking of about quantities up to a million times lower than what you get in a tobacco leaf. And then we have solanine which is a particularly toxic compound that can make you fairly sick but it can also be much worse if you eat enough of it which is why you shouldn't eat green potatoes. 
Another well-known alkaloid is capsaicin, which is what makes chilli peppers hot. And that's a defence against mammals that might want to eat the fruit because the preferred method of seed distribution by a chilli plant is by bird, since they're going to happily eat all of those chillies off the plant, completely unaffected by the capsaicin. They're going to fly off somewhere else and then uh, turd all the seeds out somewhere, some other place where they're not going to compete with the original plant. Tomatoes grows on vines which are decumbent, which means that they like to grow along the ground, a bit like a pumpkin vine, but we tend to grow them up vertically using canes and supports, or on occasion some varieties like to be grown in a hanging basket with the plant trailing back down towards the ground. They can usually be categorised by two types. We've got determinate tomatoes, which tend to ripen all of the fruits in a short time, maybe two weeks or so, and then we've got indeterminate varieties, which are the common varieties like Moneymaker or Gardener's Delight. And these will fruit all the way through the season until they die back in autumn. The original ancestral tomato plant variety Solanum pimpinelli folium grows tiny little berries that are close to the size of peas or blueberries and they were domesticated and bred by the Aztecs to produce edible fruit for use in cooking in around 500 BC. And they had varieties ranging from bright reds, green and yellows all in different shapes and sizes. The first tomato to make it to Europe was yellow and it was brought by the Spanish conquistador Hernan Cortes in 1521. And they were first mentioned in Italian botanical literature in 1544 and later named golden apples in the 1550s with the earliest discovered cookbook featuring tomato recipes published in Naples in 1692. Spanish colonisation of South America also led to tomatoes being distributed throughout the Caribbean and Southeast Asia before making the way throughout the entirety of Asia. As is always the way though, things had to be different in England. They weren't grown here until at least the 1590s with one of the earliest tomato cultivators, the influential grower John Gerard, reporting them to be poisonous, corrupt, rank and stinking. And that was despite knowing that they were eaten in Spain and Italy, which led to the general consensus that tomatoes were definitely not to be eaten. This was backed up by the correct classification of tomatoes as nightshades, which meant it was quickly recognised as a close relative to the poisonous deadly nightshade and the mandrake plant whose roots were already associated with witchcraft at the time. The notion that tomatoes were poisonous was also given further weight after they were served at banquets and they caused everyone who ate them to become seriously ill. But it was actually down to the acid in the tomatoes dissolving the lead from the metal plates, giving everyone who had eaten the tomatoes lead poisoning. These beliefs lasted for quite a long time in Britain and amongst North American colonies. They did manage to find their way into the recipe books by the mid-1700s though, but they were still a bit of a fancy luxury item and definitely not the staple that they are now. For most of this time they were grown as ornamental plants alongside other nightshades like potatoes, especially in botanical gardens where people would come for miles to see the amazing red fruit. And it's pretty hard to imagine a world where we just don't eat potatoes and tomatoes and we go to botanical gardens just to look at them. The first documented evidence of tomatoes in North America is dated to 1710 and they were spotted by William Salmon in the region now known as South Carolina. It's suspected that they found the way there from the Caribbean rather than from Europe, although Thomas Jefferson is said to have eaten tomatoes in Paris and enjoyed them so much that he sent seeds back home to America to grow them for himself. 
Later in the 19th century, Alexander Livingston is credited as being a pioneer in the tomato breeding for garden and commercial use, with his first variety, the Paragon, introduced in 1870, and his 1875 variety, the Acme, being involved in the parentage of most of the varieties of bread tomatoes in the 20th century. With perfect conditions for tomato growing in Florida and California, millions of tomatoes are now grown there for commercial use on tomato farms every year. Interestingly, tomatoes used to taste a lot better, and they were a lot sweeter too, but these characteristics were lost as a result of breeding the tomatoes to be completely red in colour, which eliminated the green ring around the top of the fruit that was there at the time, but it meant less sugar was produced by the fruit during ripening. In fact, it's proven quite difficult to breed favourable traits into tomatoes such as larger fruits or longer shelf life without introducing negative traits such as poor flavour or lower nutritional value. So tomato breeding really is a tricky business. And now this is where things get a little bit stranger. When tomatoes arrived in Europe, the continent was caught up in a mass hysteria of witch hunting, which led to widespread government-sanctioned executions and mob lynchings of up to half a million suspected witches. But what did tomatoes have to do with all of this? Well, witches were thought to use a magic ointment that they had to use on the brooms or themselves to make them fly. And it also doubled up as being able to turn people into werewolves as well, apparently. This ointment was studied by the Pope's physician who recorded the ingredients as three very close relatives to the tomato, which are nightshade, henbane and hemlock. Chances are that this was used as a painkiller or a hallucinogenic rather than a magic flying goo, but the newly arrived exotic tomato plant looked a lot like the nightshade plant and the fruit looked similar enough to the mandrake fruit for unfamiliar observers to jump to the conclusion that witchcraft was going on. It also didn't help that tomatoes have been described as wolf peaches and it's easy now to appreciate how quickly and easily word could spread about the mysterious wolf peach and its werewolf transformation inducing properties. So between tomatoes being mistakenly implicated in the production of magic ointments and lycanthropy, it's easy to understand why they weren't at the top of everyone's seed shopping list like they are today. And all that's left to wonder now is where tomatoes are going to go next, and I suppose the most obvious answer is space. There's loads of research funded by the likes of NASA to develop tomato varieties that will be able to be grown successfully in Martian soil. Uh, well, it's technically speaking regolith, and it's also toxic and sterile, so it is a bit more complicated than just soil, and you can't just go planting plants into the ground there. But that's the job of the fantastically titled astrobotanist to develop plants that will grow under the totally different conditions of other planets where they've maybe got less energy from the sun, different day and year lengths and different gravities and of course the problem of breathable air. We do already have the technology to grow indoors in the form of hydroponics and aeroponics and aeroponics is the method that NASA are particularly interested in as rather than being grown with the roots in a tank of water like we do in hydroponics, aeroponics uses a fine mist of water and nutrients blowing over the roots and that's a process that uses significantly less water than hydroponics which in itself uses a lot less water than what we'd use for traditional soil growing. As you would expect, water conservation is a top priority whether you're growing tomatoes on another planet or just here on Earth. For example, in areas where drought or water availability mean that water-hungry crops that could provide food for everyone can become available thanks to the advanced methods of wool or water growing. So there is a benefit from all of this research for everyone, no matter what planet we live on. 
That's all for this episode of the Grow It Podcast. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. And if you have enjoyed it, be sure to add this podcast to your favourites for your guide to the gardening week every Wednesday morning. And you can help me out massively, particularly in the early days of the podcast, by leaving a five-star rating on whichever service that you listen to podcasts on. You can find more of my gardening guides on my YouTube channel over at youtube.com forward slash grow it. And feel free to send me any emails with questions, content suggestions, your gardening stories, or any other messages to submit at growitmedia.uk. And I'll see you next time.